0: The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. The artist-run gallery Transmission has been at the heart of the Glasgow art scene for four decades, but last month it learned that its regular funding was being withdrawn by Creative Scotland, formerly known as the Scottish Arts Council. Later in the podcast, we talk to Katrina Brown, a linchpin of that scene who was a committee member of Transmission in the early 90s.
1: The amazing thing about Transmission is that it has always given people a really strong sense of agency, that you can do something, and you know that's really fuelled a lot of the um, independent and self-initiated practice that's gone on in Glasgow in the last 30 years. But first
0: this week, Christie's in London has just unveiled the works from the collection of Peggy and David Rockefeller that are on the Whistle Stop World Tour. After London, they head for Paris in March, before stopping off in Beijing, Los Angeles and Shanghai in April. They hit the sale room in New York between the 7th and the 11th of May. I went to Christie's to speak to Peter Johnson, the Rockefeller family historian and archivist, about the collection. Peter, before we talk about David and Peggy specifically, I wonder if we might set the scene with the Rockefeller family and their collecting
2: habits. What did David and Peggy inherit, if you like? The uh, Rockefellers—it's not. uh, I I was lucky enough to go to the Charles the First exhibition at the Royal Academy, so I realized that with the 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 British royal family, we're talking about centuries of art (laughs) acquisition. Uh, That's not true with the Rockefellers. There's really David is the second generation uh, collector. Uh, His grandfather, the the famous or infamous, uh, depending on your viewpoint. Uh, John D. Rockefeller was not really a collector, and uh, to any degree, Uh, he allowed uh, people to come in and furnish his home, but he had no quite real interest in porcelain or furniture or uh, fine paintings. That really came from uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr., David's father, and his mother particularly, Abby Aldrich Rockefeller. Uh, So, David learned about art from both of those, uh, both of his parents, as well as from a group of, uh, or a series of art advisors, many of them associated with the Museum of Modern Art in New York, beginning with the uh, the famous Alfred Barr and his equally famous and equally important assistant, Dorothy Miller. So, can you tell us about
0: John Jr.'s taste and Abby's taste, were they very much joint
2: collectors or did they have divergent tastes? They had very different tastes in art, but the difference was is that Abby Aldrich Rockefeller sort of saw beauty in everything. So uh, she realized, you know, I, I can't buy everything, so I have to concentrate on certain kinds of things. But she was equally moved by folk art Modern art, Asian art, Persian carpets, Persian and Indian miniatures. She saw beauty in all art. She admired the ability of artists to produce things. John, uh, had really very limited tastes in things. And we'll, we'll, we'll get back to the, the sort of the confrontation that occurs between the two of them. But his, uh, he was raised in a strict Baptist household. And they, they even though there was an enormous amounts of money, there's a tendency to view things like art collecting or even simple things like dancing and singing and, well, carousing. Uh, you know, these were all off limits. You, you didn't do those kinds of things. You spent, they spent their Sundays quietly. Uh, reading the Bible, walking around quietly, not talking—that kind, you know. Whereas Abby, you know, they had a lot of fun on Sundays. But Junior first encounters art in the first, uh, probably the the eighteen nineties, and then the first decade of the twentieth century. He took a trip as a college student to Great Britain. He rode his bicycle around and visited uh, the great museums and so on and so forth. So he at least started to become aware of, of great art and its existence. In the first decade of the 20th century, after he was married to Abby, it was their responsibility to not only help build the the, uh, the mansion for uh, for his father, Kaiket, which is in upstate New York, But also to furnish it. And that was when they came to grips with the practicalities of collecting art or at least using artistic things to adorn a home. And he he first encountered uh, Ming in Kangxi, China at that point in time, and literally fell in love with it. This was just love at first sight, he couldn't believe the the richness of the, uh, the colors, the, the wonder of the, uh, of the shapes and so on. So in uh, J.P. Morgan, another great uh, American uh, businessman financier whose roots were in Great Britain, Morgan himself was a great collector of many, many different things. He's probably most noted for his collection of porcelains, 1,500 of them or so. Upon his death, uh, the Duvine brothers purchased the Morgan collection and sold it off to a number of American collectors, and John D. Rockefeller Jr. was one of them. He bought about 100 uh, uh, objects, uh, for which he paid $2 million. And was it, is it fair to say that Abbey developed a more modern taste in, in, in quite opposition to uh in, in in opposition, in quiet rebellion to uh, to uh, her husband's taste, uh, she had had a very different upbringing. Her father was a powerful politician and the majority leader of the United States Senate for thirty years uh, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. He was from Rhode Island. Uh, he he was a wealthy man himself, n- nothing like the Rockefellers. But he also also had spent a great deal of time in Europe, and he had toured all of the great European museums. And he was very passionate about art and somewhat aware of the new tendencies and trends that were emerging in uh, in European art. He also brought his children with him in in, in many instances. So his daughter, Abby, uh, when he was attending conferences and so on in Paris would go around to uh, the Louvre as well as to the gallery. So she knew about Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, these sort of radical new trends in art. Uh, when they got married as a dutiful American wife, she sort of uh, acceded to, you know, the husband gets to make all of these determinations. But after a certain point in time, she began to say, you know, this is not satisfying to me. And there are other things that I would be more interested in. She began kind of very simply by purchasing traditional Japanese uh, prints, uh, Hiroshige, Hokusai, and so on and so forth. But those things were actually considered to be exotic and new examples of, of folk art. And because they were exotic, they were sort of challenging the kind of the European canon. She then moved on from that to become really interested in uh, modernism. Now, she wanted to buy some of these things. Her husband, Junior, actually really, he didn't just dislike it. He hated it. He really hated modern art. He felt that it was the antithesis of Duccio and the call of, you know, the rising of, of Lazarus and all of these other fine examples of Christian virtue. So Abby, as she began to, she said, well, uh, in that case, he wouldn't give her money to buy these things. Not that they were very expensive. You could buy good prints for 10, 20 bucks and that kind of thing but she had a, a small income from her parents' estate that gave her a few thousand dollars a year. She said, if you won't give me money for this purpose, I will use my own money. So for about 10 years, she used her own very small resources to buy, uh, excellent prints by leading, uh, European modernist and American modernists. But, uh, john d rockefeller junior went even further he said you cannot display any of these things in the public spaces in our house uh, they had a very large home in new york city it was the largest private private residence in new york city at the time she had to keep all of her modern art upstairs on the seventh floor it could not leave there so <laughs> it so this was the kind of the tension on the one hand, David Rockefeller and his siblings were seeing this really magnificent uh, medieval art and uh, and Chinese art, as well as the the Renaissance art that uh, that John was buying, but their mother, whom they loved dearly, and she was a wonderful maternal cared. You know what had happened at school today, and are you feeling okay? They just adored her. And she was sort of surreptitiously uh, uh, suborning her children away from all of these kinds of things. So in, a, so in a sense, Abby won the day. She won the day. So that they would go and visit her in her rooms upstairs on the seventh floor. And she'd bring out the, the new art that, uh, that she had purchased and explain what it was that Matisse or Picasso were, were up to in doing this. So she taught... Especially two of her sons. And I think it's, um, uh, it may have some kind of meeting, meaning, but two, uh, only two of her children were left-handed. And the two children who were left-handed became interested in modern art. This may have nothing to do with anything, <laughs> but in any case. I'm sure there are neurologists who might yeah, argue yeah, otherwise, yeah, but yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> but Nelson Rockefeller became one of the great champions of modernism in the United States. He knew all of the major artists, knew Picasso very well. And David, at a later date, would also become a a collector of modern art. Nelson fully embraced modernism. So he was, you know, all of the the movements that came after uh, the Fauves and the Cubists and so on. He had a number of wonderful Cubist paintings, German Expressionism and so on and so forth. These were things that, uh, that Nelson collected. So he really uh, got the whole story from his mother.
0: So David was sort of quietly, more quietly gathering yeah. with Peggy yeah. a collection which may not have
2: been as dramatic as Nelson's, yeah. but nonetheless. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's exactly it. Uh, I think subversives have to work in different ways when they're in the minority. And uh, one way Abby worked was to give her her sons and especially her younger son presence of modern art when he went off to college. So he had these, you know, uh, things that he hung in his room at Harvard. Uh, So, you know, and I think she figured if, if he's exposed to it, he'll grow to accept it. Now, and remember at the same time, she's also saying uh, the Chinese art that your father's collecting is really beautiful. And you should, you know, admire that as well but you have to keep an open mind there are all these other kinds of art and you should keep an open mind learn about them study them and then make your choices so the, the, this was the the key the key story with uh, with abby and her children
0: so the works that we see in the galleries in christie's this week to what ex- what sort of proportion of the sort of uh paintings and um decorative art that was collected by David and Peggy is that in the sense that obviously there have been gifts to museums and uh, some of those have been really major works. So what are we, what, what is it that we're looking at downstairs? The, the
2: David and Peggy collection is predominantly objects, paintings, furniture, porcelain, and other things that were collected by them, by the two of them. But there is a very significant number, there are a very significant number of objects that came from either Abbey or John D. Rockefeller Jr. They were either gifted to David during uh, their lifetime, or they came uh, out of their estates. Little Persian and Indian miniatures, uh, and there are quite a few of them they were collected by by abby uh, with junior like those two and they were in the estate and selections were made at various times uh some of the uh there are uh, some of the porcelain services that were that belonged to uh to abby and junior one of them was given to peggy and david on their wedding at at their wedding in 1940 others were gifted to them at, at other times but much of the art was really collected by Peggy and David after 1940.
0: And how much of it was a joint enterprise and how much of it was a
2: similarly sort of fractious yeah. connection? He he was more interested in art at the very beginning than Peggy was. But from the start, they agreed that they were they were going to have new homes and they were going to furnish them and they were going to eventually adorn the walls with art. But they decided that they would have to agree on something before it was added. Now, that didn't mean that both of them had to be wildly enthusiastic. One could be wildly enthusiastic and the other one could be, you know, yeah, well, okay, that's no big deal. But if one person really disliked something. Then it, it simply was not purchased. There was a commitment to living with these things together yeah. rather than having separate annexes. <clears throat> That's exactly it. And, you know, David was, and all of the, the children were deeply aware that, you know, their mother's stuff was in Perda on the seventh floor and dad's stuff was, uh, easily seen by anybody. And so in welcoming people to their homes, David, I think, wanted Peggy to be uh, happy with uh, the way in which she had furnished things, so that is what uh, how they set out to do this, and they really stuck with it. Um, one of one of the stories to illustrate this uh, uh, during the nineteen forties and fifties and sixties, at various times, uh, they were uh, it was possible that they could have been uh, purchased Van Goghs. Peggy found. Van Gogh's art, beautiful, but she found that his mental health and the problems that he had suffered from and his violent behavior and the fact that he'd cut his ear off, extraordinarily troubling. Uh, she just She couldn't look at a Van Gogh without thinking of this tortured soul and it made her uncomfortable. So they never purchased a Van Gogh. And, you know, they were, they were trying to, like a museum, fill in the gaps. We've got some Renoirs and Degas and Monets and Manets and, you know, kind of all the way up. Van Gogh is obviously part of that progression, but they never owned a Van Gogh. David bought his first Van Gogh in 2006. And it's uh, so he, you know, he actually adhered to the agreement for ten years after his wife's death, and it's the only Van Gogh who's ever in their possession.
0: Now, even when it comes to an artist who we think of as a kind of fractious and violent artist, an artist of an artist of deconstruction, Picasso, yeah, there is a a, a very. Uniquely, kind of poised image in their collection: a, a Rose Period
2: from nineteen oh five of a female nude. Tell yes. me about that painting. Uh, this, uh, the, the the Picasso Girl with a Basket of Flowers. I would uh, use the French title, but my French accent's not very good. Uh, the uh, this was part of the Stein collection. Uh, Picasso painted it in nineteen oh five. Sold it to a dealer in Paris for a hundred francs. Uh, Leo Stein Gertrude Stein's brother bought it they then later divided up their collection and it was in uh, Gertrude Stein's possession for the rest of her life and then uh, held by her companion of many years Alice B. Toklas it came out in 1967 David was part of a syndicate that was formed by David his brother Nelson Bill Paley uh, Andre Maier, and um, Jack Whitney Uh, to offer a certain amount of money to the, the Stein estate and their executors for that. And they offered $1.5 million for, I think, 38, um, uh, primarily Picasso's, but there were a few Brock's and some Juan Gris as well, which is a pretty astonishing number. I mean, this was, uh, for, for the, a number of them were really fabulous paintings. They acquired them. I, uh, with the understanding, because Museum of Modern Art, Bill Lieberman had been involved with the negotiations, and he said, uh, if you will agree to give certain of these paintings to the museum to fill in the gaps, uh, then, you know, it would be great for you to do it. The deal was not really contingent upon that happening, but all five of these men were very involved with the Museum of Modern Art, and it gave them the opportunity to acquire good things, but also benefit the museum. So in any case, the, uh, the bid was accepted, the paintings were brought to New York, and then they said, well, how will we then divide these up among ourselves? All right, so what they did was they assembled at the Museum of Modern Art and they wrote numbers one through six. There was another fellow who dropped out at the very end and David took his position. So David had to put up a total of $500,000 himself. Uh, And they put the numbers in a hat and then they pulled the numbers out of the hat and that would determine the order of selection. David picked the numbers out of the hat last, but he got numbers one and three. And he used uh, selection number one to pick Picasso's uh, Girl with a Basket of Flowers. Bill Paley had uh, uh, number two, and he picked a similar period. I think I think it was Blue Period, uh, just a year or two before a uh, Man with a Horse, and which he then gave to the Museum of Modern yeah, Art. But long then long da- da- then David picked another Picasso, uh, which was just on the cusp of Cubism. Reservoir Horta de Ebro. And you can see the cubist forms beginning to emerge from his painting. Those were really the three most important paintings in the collection. Nelson Rockefeller, this sort of uh, <coughs> voracious collector of Picasso's and so on and so forth, was almost beside himself because he got the last pick and all of the really great Picassos were already gone. So, uh, But it was a a great story. The fact that this girl with a basket of flowers had two owners in the 20th century, uh, and that was it, and into the 21st century, makes it a remarkable thing, and it's a remarkable painting as well.
0: I want to ask you about the porcelain. Now, they had 67 dinner sets. How does one keep that collection do they have a policy of rotation in terms of
2: what was displayed how do you look after it tell me about that uh 67 dinner services does seem slightly excessive uh especially since some of them are have an enormous number of plates others are really quite small there may be you know four or five uh coffee cups and uh, dessert plates and that kind of thing. But there's still quite a few full dinner services there. Uh They just, again, because of their color, as we talked before, they just loved these things. David was also an entomologist. And the fact that all a lot of these had, uh, you know, uh, dry little insects and beetles and birds and butterflies and so on, they were very appealing to him for that reason. Uh what they did, they had these primarily at their New York City home and in their uh their country place in Westchester County. They were pretty much evenly divided. They tried to use them all to a certain degree, but over the years they became more fond of one than the other and that kind of thing. But all of them would be used in uh, you know, in a certain uh, a certain sequence, not really sequence, but they would put them out. What they would do was uh, when they had dinner parties in either place, they kept a, a, a good record who had been at dinner, what particular services had been used at that time. And if, uh, uh you know, if friends from New York City, Henry Kissinger or John Whitehead or somebody were coming for dinner, they say, well, you know, we used that service last time we were here. The last time they were here, let's use another service tonight to show them something else. So there was an effort to use different kinds of services, but essentially, after a while, there were some that they just loved more than others, and those would be used more often. But uh, a more a more important point is, uh, at least when I was growing up, you only brought out the uh, you know the the china. Uh, you know, once in a blue moon, you know, when uh, Uncle Charlie was coming or something like that, they used their porcelain all the time. It was purchased with their the, the joint understanding. They knew we want to use this all the time, uh, so they weren't eating off melmac plates uh, at other times or paper plates. Uh, this was always in use. There was great care taken with them. Oftentimes, the staff. Uh, liked loved these things almost as much as the Rockefellers did so they were very careful in how they handled them, they were all hand washed and put carefully away and that kind of thing but uh, everything they bought was with the understanding that this is going to be part of our everyday life furniture, the porcelain and the paintings, they were part of their, the, the sort of the ambiance and the context of their lives
0: Peter, thank you so much. My pleasure. The Peggy and David Rockefeller collection is at Christie's in London until the 8th of March, and a reminder of those sale dates in New York, 7th to the 11th of May. Now, when Creative Scotland announced the recipients of regular funding for 2018 to 2021, there was a notable absentee. The Transmission Gallery, a cornerstone of the massive success that Glasgow has achieved in recent years, has had its funding withdrawn. It had received 210000 in the period between 2015 and 2018. The news provoked shock and outrage in Glasgow and beyond. Transmission issued a statement in early February saying it was, quote, "...dismayed to learn that in our 35th anniversary year, Creative Scotland have chosen to withdraw our regular funding, and that the withdrawal severely compromises the future of the gallery, and comes at a devastating time given the recent demographics and aspirations of the space." Those aspirations included what the gallery described as foregrounding the experiences of people who were underrepresented in the arts. It noted that the gallery had developed a coherent and progressive programme focused on issues of decolonisation, race, sexuality and gender. It pointed out that Creative Scotland's withdrawal of future funding comes at the first moment in Transmission's history that it has been led by a committee of people of colour. Perhaps most strikingly, the statement noted that in its funding assessment, Creative Scotland wrote that the gallery had been assessed as fundable, and that its approach to equality, diversity and inclusion was, quote, exceptionally strong. Based on this, Transmission said, We cannot help but understand Creative Scotland's decision as a political one. Transmission interprets this decision as discriminatory, conscious or otherwise, and indicative of a wider but pressing issue of institutional bias. It went on to say that while perhaps not explicitly racist, queerphobic, etc., it could be inferred that Creative Scotland does not see the expressions of these communities in their active, unrefined, ungentrified forms as being valuable. Katrina Brown, a former committee member of Transmission, who now runs the Common Guild, another Glasgow gallery, joins me on the line. Katrina, I want to just underline how important Transmission has been to the ecosystem of the art scene in Glasgow. Can you tell us about its role?
1: I think it's almost impossible to quantify the role that Transmission's played in what's happened in Glasgow in the last you know three, four decades really and um, it's about, I think it's celebrating its 35th anniversary this year so it's in many respects one of the oldest visual arts institutions in the city although um, We've all got a tendency to talk about it really as a teenager, because, of course, the great thing about transmission is it's never really grown up. (laughs) It's remained the same ever since it was established back in the 80s. And um, that's in many respects its strength, but it also makes it a thing that's quite difficult for external bodies and funding bodies to kind of understand sometimes that it doesn't have ambitions to become something else. Um, and it's run by a committee of artists and others unpaid um, and that the people and the group that, that manage the, the whole of the gallery changes every sort of two to three years. Any one person only ever serves about 18 months to three years maximum there. So it kind of I mean, that's where the sort of teenage thing comes from that it, nobody ever is there long enough to dominate, you know. And the, the, um, that means that the, the focus of the programme can change and some of the kind of strategic thinking behind what it's for and what it does and how it does it can change every now and again. So it has this sort of continual renewal built into its structure, which, of course, is a really invaluable thing in a city with a big cohort of artists such as Glasgow has nowadays. Um, and, you know, a lot of people... Um, of my generation, um, would go and work at Transmission or help out at Transmission in the years immediately after graduating as a way of kind of getting a foot in the door, finding a network of friends and peers and colleagues and a place to talk and think about art. So its, it's um functions really sort of multifaceted, really. It's not just about a gallery exhibition programme. Was it
0: directly connected to Glasgow School of Art, which of course has been seen as the great cornerstone of the scene?
1: Uh, There was never a formal connection, no. I mean, it was established by a a number of artists who had not long graduated from the school, but there was never a formal uh, uh, connection or any actual ties other than being in the same city.
0: Can you tell me about your personal experience of being on that committee? So you, if if I'm right, you were on the committee in the early 90s, is that right?
1: Yeah, I I joined the committee, um, I think at the very end of 91, early 92, and... um, I was coming into the committee at a time when Douglas Gordon and Christine Borland and the others were moving on and um, the people who were in the committee at the same time as me were Martin Boyce, Jackie Donaghy, Roddy Buchanan, Simon Starling, um, quite an amazing bunch of people and then they were followed by Kirsty Og, Tanya Layton, Toby Patterson, Toby Webster. You know, the roll call of um, former committee members is is quite something to look back on now but, you know, the great thing about transmission certainly when I was there is that everybody on the committee was involved in every aspect of running a gallery from you know ordering paper for the fax machine (laughs) to looking after Stan Douglas at the opening you know so it was a real um, eye-opener in terms of what's involved in running a gallery of any shape or form really and you know one um, person's described it brilliantly as being a bit like the Wizard of Oz when you get to see behind the curtain you know (laughs) and I think for a lot of us it really was that. You got to see behind the curtain and really work out if, if that's where you wanted to be. You know, a lot of people who went into transmission as artists actually decided that their strengths or interests maybe lay in other, other areas of the art world. So I've gone on to set up galleries or be curators or, or whatever.
0: You're a case in point.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't an artist then, but I wasn't really anything else either.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so as well as the committee and the artists it's in, it invites to show and the, the exhibition it puts on, etc., there was a lot of informal activity going on. For instance, David Shrigley producing some of his early work.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the the gallery as a space was also a sort of support mechanism for artists. So there's a membership, of course, which is hundreds of people, always has been, And the members could use any of the facilities, which of course back in the nineties, wasn't necessarily about internet access and video projectors. It was more about photocopiers and fax machines, but you know, the same principles have applied throughout that anybody that needs to use anything in the gallery can come in and do so. And yeah, you know, we made a show with Dave Shrigley. I can't remember the exact year, 92, 93. And at that point he was making a lot of his um, really fantastic sort of early small run artist books. Um, Mary Exma being the one that I remember most um. <laughs>
0: <laughs> even the title alone yeah. suggests what you're going to get yeah.
1: yeah.
0: and so yeah I mean that's it you know sort of trickly using the photocopier as you say Douglas Gordon was involved Toby Webster was involved Simon Starling you're talking about not just um the artists that would go on to get Turner Prize nominations and win the prize, etc. But you're also talking about Toby Webster, now a a leading figure in terms of the art market in Glasgow, for instance. So it wasn't just about uh, preparing artists for going on to show in museums. It was was about generating an ecosystem.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, Toby and I were talking the other day about how to characterize or 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 value what transmission has been for a lot of us and you know we were both agreeing that there would be no modern institute and there would be no common guild without um, the experiences that we had separately at, at, at transmission and you know that would be true of lots of other things as well i mean i've said this repeatedly over the last um, few weeks since the funding um, outcome became apparent but the amazing thing about transmission is but it has always given people, both individually and collectively, a really strong sense of agency that you can do something. And, you know, that's really fueled a lot of the um, independent and self-initiated practice that's gone on in Glasgow in the last 30 years.
0: Another really crucial factor in that has been a very open minded attitude over the years to public funding in Glasgow. For instance, artists would often get direct grants in order to develop their practice outside of the market, outside of market pressures, just to to find their way through their work, wouldn't they?
1: Yeah, yeah. There was a really great um, strand of funding available through the old Scottish Arts Council, which was direct grants to artists. And you know, that would be anything from £500 up to, I think there was maybe two or three a year that were more at the level of maybe 15000 So they were a real, you know, they were sort of prestige grants rather than your day-to-day grants. But um, that kind of clearly identified source of support for artists, even though it was very competitive and challenging and people weren't always happy with who got it and who didn't, it was a very clearly delineated zone of support for artists at different stages, in their careers,,
0: the public funding directly to the to the artists and the public funding to the institutions allowed a very mature system to develop, whereby, as I say, there was no market pressure, and that I think it seems to me has always been absolutely central to the to the way that Glasgow artists rose to prominence, in other words, if you fund grassroots, if you fund from from the bottom, if you like, then inevitably there will be a rise to the top, which has had a massive impact across the world, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how um, you can extrapolate from those base factors. And, you know, it'd be nice to think that if you keep the the grassroots nourished, then the tall trees can grow from it, to extend that analogy. But um, it's, you know, we've often said there's obviously maybe also been something in the water here at a certain point, because it's not all about grants and it's not all about funding. I think... There's something about the size of the city and the fact that, you know, people do sort of know each other and have a a sense of making work for people. You know, that was one of the brilliant things that transmission can do um, in terms of having a sense that there's a constituency there for you and you're not just, you know, working away in a garret and then hoping somebody's going to come and look at it. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's a complex uh, mesh. I think all of these things, of course, you need a little bit of all of the elements but um whatever it was that was that was combining and um, certainly seemed to do the job and, and glasgow city council was very important as well both in its um ability it, ha- it had its own sort of small grant screen which still runs and was very helpful with organizations like transmission in, in terms of the buildings um, and you know there's all sorts of factors that you can begin to pick at and think whether they were the essential bits of the equation
0: So how would you assess the current situation with Creative Scotland and the Glasgow art scene? I don't mean just in relation to transmission, but I know that there have been concerns developing for quite some time about how that process is working.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what's happened with transmission is a symptom of a bigger problem. And, um, you know, we have this uh, funding structure now where there's either three year regular funding, which is what applies to bigger organisations like the fruit market or DCA or those that be very visible and very public, as well as um, being the source of any funding on a regular basis for tiny organisations. So, the the mixture in there is is very extreme. And then the only other option is sort of open project funding, which is covers everything basically, is what you would imagine, and for one-off projects. And I think. You know, things that are small organisations um, that are very much led by their artistic direction or their, um, uh, you know, by writers and artists and individuals who are about making work and generating work, they sort of falter in that system, it, it would seem to be. And, um, you know, I think the demands that are placed on organisations that are within that three-year funding in terms of how they have to meet government objectives around all sorts of things. Um, it's very challenging for a small organisation like Transmission, which is run entirely by unpaid volunteers who are also trying to develop practices as artists. And I think, um, you know, we've seen this recent um, explosion of issue again um, with Creative Scotland, given the the recent announcements of, um, funding across the board you know there's been there's been a lot of issues in the theater sector there's been issues elsewhere it's not it's not just about the visual arts but of course the thing we know about the visual arts is that um the exhibitions that we make are are free to access there's no there's no ticket revenue there's no income streams there in terms of box office and that makes the a very straightforward um uh, issue that we have to you know it costs money to make exhibitions it costs money to run a free to access program and um, how that happens in the straightened times and challenging funding circumstances doesn't seem to be entirely obvious at the moment. You know, in Scotland, generally, we've already lost exhibition programmes at Inverleith House, of course, in Edinburgh, and the Glasgow Sculpture Studios, um, which is obviously also a membership organisation and primarily about the studio provision there, but it ran an excellent exhibition programme until last year, which was curtailed due to lack of funds. So you know, there's a lot of alarm bells ringing uh, for those of us that are working in the arts and trying to make exhibitions here.
0: One of the things that's always been so important about Glasgow is that community that you talked about, and, and, and artists just wanting to stay and even being drawn from outside. Are you at, are you concerned that what's happening now might threaten the continuation of that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, of course, there's a risk of reputational damage, you know, it's always, Glasgow's always sort of sold itself as a a happy buoyant place to come and uh, plough your wares as an artist mm-hmm. and um, you know although that's obviously still the case in many respects because there's great studio provision and it's relatively cheap and you know it's cheaper to live here than it might be in London and so on and so forth but um, it'd be I think if we were to lose any more of the spaces where people can sort of coalesce around art whether that's through looking at it or making it or being involved in running places that exhibit it um, i think that would begin to eat into the reputation in a bad way yeah
0: katrina thank you very much
1: you're very welcome
0: We asked Creative Scotland for a statement on transmission and they sent us the following. The decision to not include transmission in the regularly funded organisation network was taken in the light of our desire to establish a more effective means of support for artist-run spaces across Scotland. The Visual Arts Sector Review, published in 2016, highlighted the importance of these spaces to the visual arts sector and we are committed to finding a way for this work to be most effectively supported. We will be working with Transmission and other artist-run initiatives in Glasgow and other parts of Scotland to establish a new approach to how we fund their programmes in the future. An approach that we hope will be more flexible and responsive to their needs than our current regular and open project funding routes. This work will be supported by funding from Creative Scotland and is likely to take place over the latter half of spring and into early summer, ideally with an outcome for late summer, early autumn. In the meantime, Transmission is funded through to April 2019. And that's all for this podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast and give us feedback on Twitter and Facebook at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Next week's podcast is a photography special. We look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for listening.